So good to be here. If you're the type likes to follow an actual Bible, Matthew chapter 4, my job is to open the Bible today. I take that really serious. And uh, anytime you do that, you want to ask a couple questions. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? So a, a couple things before we get going. Um, after this morning, uh, there will be a resource table set up somewhere. Um, and I think it's going to be over that left because that's seems to be the option. So it's over there somewhere. Um, we, um, we've set up our resources in USBs, audio and video. Um, the reason we do that is because that's how we support our missions in the world. So 100% of what we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. Uh, we have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we could do our part to break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats. So um, I think this is the first time I've ever had my resources here, so I'll save you the whole thing where I tell you what's new since the last time. It's all new, right? Um, so you guys can avail yourself of it. The only thing I would ask is that if you don't want anything, God bless. I'll see you next time I'm up here. Um, if you know you're going to grab something, if you could do that first, that would be awesome, uh, like in the first 10 minutes, just because we have to pack it down and take it to the next thing. So um, if you could do that for us, that, that would be fantastic. The only other thing I want to mention, um, it, this, is, uh, this is nothing new to Emerge, uh, but Morayfield is, is, you know, three years old or so, so you might not know this. What I do is I always set aside um, something special for the evening meeting. Um, and we really try to pack Warner out, and, um, and I just bring something really special. And tonight is no, uh, is no exception. One of the most important, uh, most meaningful things I'll ever share in the world, I'm going to share tonight. And so I'm going to ask you to consider uh, taking an hour and 10 minutes of your life and uh, coming down to Warner at 6 o'clock. Um, I promise you, it'll change your life. Um, if it doesn't, I'll personally, out of my own pocket, refund whatever they charge you to come, all right? So whatever the ticket costs, I'll just, I'll give it back to you, right? So it's a really stress-free sort of situation. So come on, come on back tonight, and, um, and we'll do that. So I want to talk to you today about Jesus. Um, uh, you know, a recent census um, took place in Australia, and evidently Australia is not a Christian nation. And um, so uh, less people are identifying uh, as Christian than ever before. And of course, people call me and they panic about this. And, um, and, and I, I, I think part of the issue is the people controlling the narrative around Christianity has made the word ugly. So all, all you have to do to take a beautiful word and make it ugly is attach toxic images to it. And so, um, so I was having a good chat with a good friend of mine um, who's not a Christian at all, um, but very smart and very kind. We have great chats. And he, he told me one time, he said, the reason I could never become a Christian is because if the whole world converted and saw the world that way, the world would not be a better place. And, um, and I thought, well, that's a, that is the best critique of Christianity I think I've ever heard. I said, so, I said, tell me what you think a Christian is, right? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. So he listed out what he thought a Christian was. And, um, and I thought, yeah, um, yeah, that would not make the world a better place. But that's actually not what Christianity is. And so somebody somewhere uh, took a toxic image and attached it to a beautiful word, and now he thinks that's what Christianity is. So, so the first time he ever asked me if I was a Christian, I'm so glad I said, I don't know. Um, and if anybody doesn't know me, ask me if I'm a Christian, I always say the same thing. I say, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what you think a Christian is. So until, why don't you tell me what you think a Christian is, and then I'll tell you if I'm that, right? Because otherwise, we're acquiescing to that image. And so I want to talk to you about that today. I want to talk to you about what Christianity is and what Christianity isn't. And I want us to reground ourselves in Jesus because uh, let me tell you a couple of things Christianity is not. 
Uh, Christianity is not experts in climate, okay? Uh, there are experts in climate. Uh, they're called climate scientists. So just because a Christian rants on the internet about climate doesn't mean he knows one thing about what he's talking about uh, with climate. Christians are not health experts. Uh, there are health experts in the world. They're called doctors, right? Um, and so just because someone's a Christian doesn't mean you'd let them operate on your eyeball, right? If you said, hey, are you a doctor? No, but I'm a Christian. Hold still. Come on. No, right? <laughs> Christians are not health experts. They're not climate experts. They're not sex experts. They're not. That's obvious. We're not theological experts. We're pretty bad at that, too. And we're not political experts. And here's the good thing. You're not called to be that. I'm assuming I'm in a room of Christians, right? So we're not called to be any of those things. A, a Christian is simply someone who is seeing the world how Jesus saw the world, seeing God how Jesus saw God, and applying Scripture the way Jesus applied Scripture. Christians are not supposed to be experts in the Bible. We're not good at that either, right? And we're not, and we're not supposed to be experts in being right about singular verses. We're called to apply those verses the way Jesus applied those verses. And I would say that if the whole world converted to how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, and how Jesus applied Scripture, the world would be a better place. Somehow, a beautiful word like Christianity got hijacked by toxic images. And let me be clear, it's not the leftists, it's not the atheists, they don't care. It's, it's us. Christians are con in control of the narrative, and somehow... 2% of Christianity hijacked the whole word with toxic images. I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about Jesus, and I want to talk to you about the way he saw the world and how that would make the world a better place. I want to talk to you about how he saw God. I want to talk to you about how he applied Scripture, which I would say would make the world a better place. Now, Christianity from the beginning has affirmed Jesus was divine or fully God, and I affirm that. Joe affirms that. Mark and Nina affirm that. ACC, Emerge Church affirms that, ACC affirms that, all, and, and, and I don't want to take away from that at all. Jesus was fully divine. As a matter of fact, I take that so seriously. I have a 10-part series over there on the implications of Jesus being fully divine. That's how sure I am of that. However, Orthodox Christianity has also affirmed that from the beginning, Jesus was fully human. And I want to talk to you about that part, because if we only think of Jesus as God, it becomes incredibly easy to rationalize not living how he taught us to live. So it goes something like this. Come on, man. Jesus taught us to treat our enemies better than that. And you're like, I know, but he was God. That was easy for him. Hang on. He was also fully man. And in his humanity, he was a rabbi. And I want to talk to you about how the Christian movement started. The Christian movement started with a rabbi. How do I know he was a rabbi? because they called him rabbi. And it was a special title that they only gave to a few people, right? In the whole Bible, there's only three rabbis, Jesus, Paul, Gamaliel, really. It was like the highest honor, because in a world where only 3% of people could read, if you're the one person who can read, and you show up at a synagogue, and they're like, Rabbi, tell us what this says, you're putting an incredible amount of trust that this guy is being honest, having integrity, taking the scripture seriously. You're, like, it was like this high, high honor, and a rabbi's job was to teach disciples how to live, which leads me to this. Are we not a room of disciples of Jesus? The answer would be yes. And hopefully that doesn't just mean a group of people hoping to go to heaven one day. Hopefully that's a group of people trying to live like our rabbi taught us to live. And I, and I would say that seeing the world that way would make the world a better place. A rabbi's way of seeing the world, a rabbi's way of seeing God, and a rabbi's way of applying scripture had one word to it. And for the rest of the sermon, we'll just call it this one word because it's easier. Yoke. 
A rabbi's yoke was a summary statement of how he saw God, how he saw the world, and how he applied Scripture. What he forbidden, what he allowed, what he bound, what he loosed, what kind of thing, what constitutes work on Sabbath, how, what, what are reasons for divorce, what are not reasons for divorce. What are all, these were a summary statement of how Jesus saw the world. And it started a movement. Originally, it was called the Jesus Way. Then it just became shortened to Way. And then it took on the name Christian. The word Christian was a group of people living the way of Jesus. And I would say that that would make the world a better place. So let's take a look at this. This is Matthew chapter 4. This is a rabbi named Jesus calling his disciples. Now watch what he says. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they're casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Now, if you're a note taker, that's really important. Follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Let's stop. Can we admit together that Jesus' sales pitch needs a little work, right? Seriously, it's not actually not that compelling. Uh, follow me. No details, no where, no when, no when do you come back. No, just follow me. And then he uses a strange metaphor around fishing for people. Like if you're a fisherman, you're like, what is this? Talk about like what do you but then it works. It's very surprising that a sales pitch that needs a bit of work actually works remarkably well. At once they left their nets and followed him. He's got grown people quitting their jobs to follow a guy who just said, follow me. Strange. This is weird. But then he, he really has a high success rate here. Check this out. Next slide. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Like, what was Zebedee thinking? Like his whole workforce quit with no notice. You got people leaving their wives, their children, their jobs, their communities, their families, and their boats to follow a guy who sails fish. Like if you're married, how does this work? Your husband comes home from work. You say, hi, honey, how was your day? You're like, I quit my job. You're like, you did what? I quit my job. Why? Why? This guy came by, told me to follow him. I thought that was a good idea. Where are you going? Didn't say. When are you coming back? Didn't say that either. He just said, follow him. And I thought, well, okie dokie, right? Like, this is, this is strange. But then everybody he says, follow me to, uh, does. And you might be thinking, well, he was God. Well, that's not how you draw a crowd. You don't draw a crowd coming out of the wilderness claiming to be God. People run from you. There must have been something else going on. Watch what happens. Next slide. This is the fifth disciple. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach him. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me. It's a weird sales pitch again. Follow me, Jesus told him, and then it worked. And Levi got up and followed him. What's going on here? Grown people leaving everything they know to follow a guy who just simply said, follow me. When I learned this, it changed my life. I'm hoping it's going to change yours. Anytime I speak, I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I hope that's your experience today as we explore this amazing, amazing story. See, to understand this, to understand that every Hebrew boy wanted to be a rabbi. Why? Because it was the highest honor. That was like to be trusted with teaching. It's sort of like this. How many boys in Morayfield grow up wanting to play rugby league? <laughs> All of them. How many of them are ever actually going to play for the Brisbane Broncos? Right? And very few. Almost none of them. And almost and even less in the state of origin. Why? Because at the end of the day, only the best of the best of the best of the best of the best make it. Most people just aren't that good. That, that's, why, that's why every 45-year-old man in Morayfield has a back-in-the-day story. Right? <laughs> like, oh, I was awesome. Back in the day, 
then I hurt my knee, right? It's my knee, right? right? And that, that might be true, but the truth is for most people, they're just not that good, right? At some point, every boy is told, I'm sorry, you got to go make a living somewhere else. You're not good enough to play in the next league. Uh, but the best of the best of the best make it. It, it, was, it was like that with being a rabbi. To, to be a rabbi, only the best of the best of the best of the best made it. So in, in the next three minutes, I'm hoping, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just share with you real quickly how, what you had to do to become a rabbi, okay? Step number one, you had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. Um, so that we're all mostly gone at that point. Um, you had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. If you did that, you graduated to the next school. Let me show you the names of the schools. Next slide. By the way, whoever chose that photo of me, good job. It's, like I've been on stages before with photos of me that were not flattering. Okay. Like it looked like I was smelling something, right? That is great. All right. So the, so the two schools are the Bet Safar and the Bet Talmud. Now the Bet Safar just means the school of the book. Uh, if you memorize Leviticus by age six, you get to go to the Bet Safar. The Bet Safar lasts from six to 12, and your job is to memorize the whole Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, if you memorize the entire Torah, that qualifies you to take an exam. Um, which leads to this question, if to just take the exam, you had to memorize the whole book, what could they possibly be testing you on? Well, your Torah exam at 12 years old was based on your ability to ask questions about the scripture, um, not give answers, because they wanted you to be able to keep a conversation about God going. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions, not his answers, his questions. Now, if you did that, you graduated to the next school. The next school was called the Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud lasted from 12 to 30. It was 18 years long and five stages. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call the stages stage one, two, three, four, five. And the idea is, is that if you graduate from stage one, you get to go to stage, yes, right? And then two to three, three to four, four to five. If you ever wondered why Jesus disappeared for, for, from 12 to 30, and then at 30 years old, he reappears, and everybody's calling him rabbi, this is why, okay? So, so you would just go through, and at any point, if you were disqualified, they said, look, we're sorry you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. Uh, but the best of the best of the best of the best of the best make it, right? And so by stage five, we're now 30 years old, and we all graduate from rabbi school. Congratulations. Now, the only thing left to determine is what kind of rabbi will you be? There were only two types of rabbis. There were rabbis without authority, and then there were rabbis with authority, Rabbis without authority were by far more common. 99.9% .9 of all rabbis were rabbis without authority. But about once every two or three generations, a rabbi would come along so special that they would endue him with an ordination, a rabbi with authority. Let, let me, this is the most important word I'm going to show you today. Let me show you this next slide. So this is the word, for, this is the word authority. The word is samika, right? That's Hebrew for authority. So I want to teach you that word. So with some go Broncos or go Maroons or whatever, whoever you pull for, with some real gusto on everybody to try to say this word, it sounds like this, samika. All right, ready? Go. Samika. Okay, let's up the, the ump a little bit, and let's, let's try that again. Ready? Go. Samika. Perfect amount of ump. Now, if you're going to sound Jewish, which of course you want to, we got to add a little move to it, and the little move at the end of that is, all right? So, 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 so let's, 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 let's all try that together. It just sounds like this. All right? Ready? Go. Very good. Very right. Let's try that again. Ready? Go. All right, yeah. So there were rabbis without Samika, Mr. Q. There were rabbis without Samika, and then there were rabbis with Samika. Now, a rabbi without authority was a rabbi just the same, but, but he had to teach the yoke of the rabbi that taught him. A rabbi's yoke was his way of living, how he applied scripture. And so 
So every yoke in Israel was somehow tied back to some rabbi with authority. But if you were a rabbi with authority, it meant you could make up your own yoke. You could make up your own way of interpreting scripture. Now, here's how they determined who had authority and who didn't. When you graduated from rabbi school, they baptized you, right? And, and, and at 30 years old, think, think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. And at your baptism, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority. Think about your scripture. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one, John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. It's almost like the father was saying, if no one else is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but as a rabbi with Samika. A rabbi with Samika. Which means he can now make up his own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. Think about your scriptures. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with authority. Samika. In other words, that doesn't mean he was yelling. That meant he was saying something new. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy. In other words, Jesus is, the key to that phrase is my. Have you ever wondered why Jesus' first sermon was so well attended? He had to climb a mountain to get away from people. That, that's, um, that's amazing. I've been preaching for years, and you're a right nice-looking group of people, i got to tell you. But I hardly have to climb a mountain to create space, right? Like, why, why would someone's first sermon ever be so well attended? Well, if you're the new rabbi, and, and you're the new rabbi with Samika, wow. And that means, that means, and rumor has it that your yoke is easier and your burden is lighter than the other rabbis. Whoa, man, you would draw a huge, huge crowd. Jesus was making claims that his way of seeing the world, his way of seeing God, and his way of applying Scripture was less burdensome than what you've heard before. And it started a movement called Christianity. And I would say that way of seeing the world and that way of seeing God and that yoke, that way of applying Scripture, would make the world a better place. Now, the first thing you did when you graduated from rabbi school is you went and got disciples, now, where would you go get disciples? Think about it. You'd go to the Bet Talmud, and what would you find there? You would find pre-vetted 12-year-olds, pre-vetted guys that had already memorized the Scripture. You didn't have to ask if they were intelligent. You didn't have to ask if they were disciplined. You didn't have to ask if they were passionate. They had memorized the whole thing and wowed the teachers of the law with their questions. But you knew you were getting a prize sort of person, right? So the, the new rabbis would go, and they would choose... They're disciples. And the only question they had to ask is, do I believe they can do greater things than me? And if the new rabbi believed they could do greater things than him, he would ordain them into his rabbi school with two words. What do you reckon those two words were? <laughs> follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But most of them were only ever told you're disqualified. But this new rabbi, he doesn't go to the Bet Talmud to find his disciples. Where does he go? He goes to the lake. And who does he find? He finds some fishermen. Hang on. If they were fishermen, what does that mean? It means they've been disqualified. And he says, Simon, Andrew, 
follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity. Why? They had longed their whole life to hear follow me from a rabbi, but they'd only heard you're disqualified. That is the yoke of our rabbi. He qualifies disqualified people. And aren't you glad? Someone would disqualify me. Someone would disqualify you. That's why anybody in the name of Christ, if they're painting a picture of disqualification, they've missed the whole point of Jesus. And what I'm finding is that some people are resisting the word Christian, not because of what it is, but because of that picture. It's not the yoke of our rabbi. And, and let me look, unless you've been given special samika and you haven't, none of us have, all of our authority comes from the yoke of Jesus Christ, right? That means we can't change his yoke and call it Jesus. You just can't do it. Oh, by the way, first four disciples, fishermen, fifth disciple, what was his job? Tax collector, where did he find him? At the lake. Hold on. If you're a tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? Fishermen. In other words, we're going to find out right now if you four have what it takes to follow me. Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years and let's go change the world? That is the yoke of our rabbi. And I would say if the whole world saw God, saw the world, and saw scripture that way, the world would be a better place. Now, the first thing a rabbi would do once he had his disciples is he'd teach them how to walk. It's quite literal. You would learn how to walk like your rabbi. Now, obviously, metaphorically, it was live like he lived, but quite literally, you would learn to walk. Jewish historians say you could always tell what disciple belonged to what rabbi by the way they walked, which makes me wonder if there wasn't like a rabbi in the first century with like a limp, right? But you would learn. Th think about your Bible, right? Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciple if you walk like I walk. And you could always tell who the best student of the day was. The best student of the day got to be the line leader, right? And you could always tell who that was because the rabbis would throw up, like they, they have these shoes that would throw up this dust. You can, if you're a reader, you can read the book Covered in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus by Lois Verberg. But, he, but that's the idea is, is you would get covered in dust from your waist down. But it wasn't dust you wanted to wipe off. It was dust you wanted to show off. It meant I, I was the best too. I got to be the line leader. So you'd go back to synagogue. You'd go back to temple. And you'd be like, hey, check out my dust, right? It was, like a, it was like a pride thing. It was like, a, oh, it was an honor to be. Remember there was this one time? Jesus said, if you ever go to a place and they don't accept you and they treat you cruelly, how should you respond? Shake the dust off your feet. How can the same guy say that and also say, be merciful, forgive everybody, be a peacemaker, right? Unless the dust off your feet was considered a blessing in their world, right? Jesus is like, hey, even if men treat you cruelly, pray for them, bless them. And if the only thing you can give them is the dust off your feet, still give them that. That is the yoke of our rabbi. And here's the truth. You'll either be covered in the dust of your rabbi or you'll be covered in the dust of your own issues. The dust of your mom, the dust of your dad are my personal favorite. That's just not what I was always taught. As if that's going to stand the test of time. None of those things have the power to change the world. What changes the world for the better is the yoke of our rabbi and being covered in the dust of it. I love the yoke of our rabbi. Like, um, like Christianity at its core is a beautiful thing that changed the world. Like Jesus saw God at work in everybody, not just elite people. See, in Jesus' world, there was a nine-layered class system. Jesus saw God at work in every person, not just the elite people. Jesus was like, uh. And Paul later says, so yeah, well, there's one God holding the whole thing together. For by him and through him and for him, all things were made. In him, all things hold together. Well, how would that make the world a better place? Well, if that's true, then God doesn't choose sides. 
You can't treat women worse than men. You can't treat blacks worse than whites. You can't treat poor worse than rich. You can't do that because there's one God holding the whole thing together. You can't harm people without knowing you're going to harm the God in them. And that's the same thing that holds you together. That would change the world, specifically the Roman Empire that was built on a nine-layer class system. Boy, I think if the whole world converted to that, the world would be a better place. Like there's this one time. If you want a great illustration of how Jesus applied scripture, here you go, right? There's this one time, there's this lady who's caught in the act of adultery, like in the act, like, whoa, boy, in the act, right? And now you guys know your Bible, right? Like, what does the Bible clearly say to do to her? It says you got to stone her, right? And there's a verse, and it's in context. You can't even play the game of, well, that's out of context. No, it says, if she commits adultery, you stone her, right? And so they bring her to Jesus. Now, I want to make sure we're all together here. Why do they need Jesus? They need someone with? Yes, so they throw her at Jesus' feet and they say, Jesus, the Bible says stoner. What's your yoke say? Like, how are you going to apply this? Christianity is not an exercise in getting the Bible right. Christianity is an exercise in getting Jesus right, okay? You don't want to get the Bible right and Jesus wrong. That would be a problem. Christianity is an exercise in how Jesus applied Scripture. So, so Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. You're right. The Bible says stoner. So I say stoner. There, I've kept it. Oh, but wait a minute, I have Samika, which means I can make up my own yoke. So the Bible says stoner, so my yoke says stoner. But my yoke also says you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. <laughs> right? Which is like this rabbi kung fu, like, Wah! right? Everybody gets tired of holding their stones, you know? Set them down. Jesus waits for everybody to leave, and he says to the lady, hey, where are your accusers? What a great question. Don't, not, don't tell me about it. Don't, what you do? No. Where are your accusers? She's like, oh, they're not here. He goes, great. Then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because the Torah said you had to stone someone caught in the act of adultery. But it also said you had to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. <laughs> right? Right? That is the yoke. Of our rabbi, which leads me to this question. The yoke of our rabbi didn't condemn somebody caught in the act of adultery. Could our yoke do that? Or have we changed his yoke? My yoke couldn't. I grew up in a church. I saw this as a kid. It must have mattered to me a lot because I still remember it. They brought up somebody who had committed adultery and they announced it to the whole congregation, supposedly to make people afraid of doing it. It's not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 with severe daddy issues, you know. And, and then, of course, people left the church and people say, oh, they rejected Jesus. No, they did not reject Jesus. They rejected that image of Jesus. And that image of Jesus should be rejected. Because it's a changed yoke. You can't change Jesus' yoke. All of our authority comes from that. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You can't say, go and sin no more so God won't condemn you. And, and then change the whole order of it. He says, no, 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 no. I'm going to be kind. And hopefully the kindness of God is what motivates us to repentance. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Like if you were caught in adultery, how would you want to be treated? Well, especially if the penalty is death. You'd want to be treated with dignity. You'd want to be let off the hook. 
but then you'd probably want to be challenged to change your life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He did something more profound than being right about that one verse people knew. He fulfilled scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that yoke changes the world. That is the yoke of our rabbi. You know, the yoke of our rabbi exists in the Old Testament too. Like Hebrews 11 was all these disqualified people that God qualified. <laughs> like by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith. Sam. You go read their stories. They all made mistakes with zeros attached. Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would we be saying about Abraham? If Abraham was available to preach here next Sunday, would he be welcomed or would a chat thing start around his mistakes? It's not the yoke of our rabbi. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got his leg sticking up out of the sand. God's response, you'll do. I'll have you write the foundation of all scripture. Samson doing horrible things. But Solomon had a thousand women. A thousand women. Like my God. Like you're dating the entire city of Chinchilla. <laughs> Why would you expose yourself to such stress, you know? Well, imagine that conversation between, like, excuse me, sir. You the guy that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand women? I am. You got to be the smartest guy on earth. <laughs> you want to write a book? <laughs> By faith, David. David had 700 women. 700. And he still went and got the one he wasn't supposed to have. You know, there are Christian denominations that in their written bylaws would never have David preach from a platform because of the mistake he made. But they'll open a book David wrote, call it the word of God, and fail to see the hypocrisy in that? It's not the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi is God is always reaching out in consent and love to restore, to love. The, the God Jesus revealed was a God that always loves people more than the rule you found. I know you found a rule, but God loves people more than the rules. And he called us to fulfill scripture and not just be right about singular verses. I would say if the whole world converted and saw it that way, the world would be a better place. The problem is the word Christian got hijacked by, to be fair, only about 2% of Christians that are really flipping loud on the internet. And it's our job to make sure that word does not get toxic images attached to it. I'll tell two more stories, uh, one from the Bible and one from my personal life. So there's this really quick line in Matthew. It says, so Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Really quick line. Could read over it very fast if you don't know the geography. Like today, Caesarea Philippi is a over an hour drive in a motor car on a paved road from Galilee, from where Jesus lived. You didn't just happen to just go up to Caesarea. It'd be like walking from here to Malulaba. Uh, you just wouldn't accidentally just go by there. Plus, Caesarea Philippi was the, was the worst place on earth. Like you, no Christian would ever go there because it was the center of the worship of the goat god Pan. As a matter of fact, today, Caesarea Philippi is not called Caesarea Philippi. It's called Panaya, uh, the city of Pan. Um, I've been there, um, and I took a photo of it. Uh, let me show you a photo of Caesarea Philippi. Check this out. So um, the reason this photo is of such high quality is I took it myself. 
professional photographers everywhere are trying to get strangers' arms <laughs> in their photos. I nailed it. So this was where the worship of Pan took place. Um, there are children in the room. And so I do not want to be, I want to be historically accurate, but I do not want to be gross, okay? So I need the adults to sort of read through some of the language here, okay? All right? So over here was, you can go look, you can go look at it yourself. There's a big old plaque. This was called the Court of Pan and the Nymphos. Nymphos. So Pan received worship through public acts of fertility rituals. Okay? That was going on right here. Underclassed people debasing themselves in the worship of Pan. Gross. Disgusting. Why would they do that? Well, they were taught their whole life that this was the entrance and exit to hell. And if you didn't worship Pan properly, he would open up the door to hell and swallow you in. So they were terrified. Jesus took his youth group on a missions trip there. <laughs> right? I God have been fired for sure. Imagine this. Like the worst thing going on in Morayfield today is Nickelodeon compared to this. And Jesus is there with 12 guys. He has to focus them, you know. Remember the story? Maybe he's like, Peter, Peter, right here, bro. Right here. Who do you say that I am? Peter shakes it off. He's all disoriented. He goes, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember what Jesus said? That's right. And upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus didn't go into this situation, which was far worse than anything we're seeing right now. He didn't go into this situation and condemn them, hurt them, shame them. He didn't do anything. He didn't quote Bible verses at them. He just went, hang on. You're acting like this because you're scared of that? And Jesus stood over the gates of hell and said, bring it on. That is the yoke. Of our rabbi. 0659, you're needed. <laughs> like evidently big time too. <laughs> I used to kickbox. I got really good at it. I was a really good fighter back in the day. I, I won the Southeastern Regionals two years in a row. That qualified me for the U.S. Open. I fought in the U.S. Open. I qualified high enough in the U.S. Open to be invited to the NASCA World Championships. I was good. Now, let me be clear. I'm 46. I have no interest in fighting now. It hurts too bad to get hit. That's one. Two, when I fought, it was more like karate kid stuff, you know, like, you know, fight, stop, point. It was that. Now they take you to the ground and pull your arm off. It's a whole other thing. But I was good back in the day. And, and so the, my mom had this room of trophies and all this stuff. And she had filmed the U.S. Open fight, the semifinal, on like one of these like Beverly Goldberg 
you know, VHS things that you had to hold on your shoulder, you know. So we invited the whole neighborhood over to watch the fight. And um, so we're all over there. And there's this guy in my neighborhood. His name was Kenneth Brown. Kenneth Brown was a freak of nature. I am six foot two, 86 kilos as you stand, as you watch me right now. And that means if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can one day have a body like mine. Um, uh, Kenneth Brown was six foot two, 95 kilos in like the eighth grade. Like he's one of these freaks of nature that had to shave in the fourth grade. You know what I'm saying? Like it never occurred to me he might have failed four times, but we were in the same grade. And um, he comes over and he says, Shay Willard, I think I can whoop you. I said, I think you're right. He said, no, I'm serious. I want to fight. I said, I'm serious. I ain't fighting you. You're twice my size. He said, I bought boxing gloves to prove I could whoop you. I said, hold on, boxing gloves. We're going to put our hand in a mitt, and you can't grab me and take me to the ground. We're going to stand up. and You said fight. What you meant was box. Yes. And do that. So we went outside, and the friends made a ring. You know, you picture this fight, fight, fight. I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown. I beat him half to death. I was fast, he was slow, I was skilled, he was not. I was just in and out, like pop, pop, pop. Couldn't hurt him, he's huge. And he got frustrated. He tried, to, he, tried to end, he tried to knock me out with one punch. He threw this right cross that came about, like this is about how fast it came. You know? Like I actually had time to think, I'll move now. When he finished throwing the punch, he left himself like this. And I was like, oh. Never before nor since have I hit a human being this hard. It was a perfect shot. If you know anything about striking, it's called striking from the ground up, right? You don't, right? No, no. Everything. Big muscles leading small muscles. Right on the base of his chin. Bam! (laughs) And I just sort of stood over him waiting for him to fall. I'd never hit anybody that hard. In retrospect, I should have kept hitting him. I'd never hit anybody that hard, so I just sort of stood over him. Stummered back, caught his balance. He looked up at me, and now he was mad. I was like, oh, no. His face turned red. And he said, boy, is that all you got? And it was. I never ate anybody that hard in my life. How many of you know if someone takes your best shot and they're still coming, you lose? I forfeited. That was it. That was the end of that. You know, the Apostle Paul said that the yoke of our rabbi was put on public display at the cross. In other words, if you want to see the, the way Jesus saw the world, if you want to see how well it worked, just look at the cross. This guy that's up there refusing to use his power to take revenge, refusing to use his power to get the people who deserved it, a God that treats people as their worth, never as they deserve, even in great stress, that works. That's the way. Oh, blessed are the merciful. Oh, be a peacemaker, for they're the children of God. Oh, forgive everybody before the sun goes down. Oh, oh, bless your enemies, not just your friends. Oh, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give your tunic and your cloak. Oh, all right. Can you do that with 39 lashes, some nails in your hand, a crown of thorns on your head? How about some mocking? And and they beat him, 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 and they beat him. And he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving the temptation of Christ on the cross cross was use your power to violate your yoke and he wouldn't do it that changes the world and he died you can't do more to a man than kill him he dies what happens after he dies well no one knows 
But supposedly, he told Peter, and Peter wrote about it later, that when he died, he went to hell and took that on. And he preached to the dead that were there, which makes me wonder, wonder how his altar call went, you know, I don't know. It says when he rose from the dead, tombs everywhere emptied out. Anyway, so he goes to hell and preaches. This is how I picture it in my head. I think Jesus descended into hell and looked Satan right in the eye and said, boy, is that all you got? Was that your best shot? Your best shot to destroy my yoke was to kill me? No, no, no. I'm stuck here for three days, but I'm going to preach the whole time I'm here. And then when I'm out, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to cook breakfast on the beach. For the very person who denied me in my time of need. I'm not even going to bring it up. I'm just going to ask him if he still loves me. If he still loves me, we're going to change the world. Because the yoke of our rabbi is love saves the day. You fulfill scripture, not just be right about it. I would say that that does change the world for the better. So may you, my brothers and sisters, may we be people who carry his yoke. Because that's the hope for the world. May you understand that you serve a God that believes in you more than you believe in him. May you understand that he's entrusted us with his yoke for our city, our state, our country, and ultimately the world. May we never change that yoke and call it Christianity, thereby making that word ugly. May we be the people that the world goes, look at how they live. That would make the world a better place. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. May we ask forgiveness for any place we've changed his yoke. Sermons are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application. Here's my question. Is there any place we've changed his yoke? We have no right. May we ask forgiveness for that and then go forward with integrity, living and declaring the yoke of our rabbi. Is there any place we've changed his yoke? Is there anybody we need to cook breakfast on the beach for? Is there anybody that we've disqualified in the name of Jesus? disqualified I hope Jesus gets bigger the cross works better the resurrection of central scriptures got bigger not smaller thanks for letting me be a part of your morning I hope you were moved a bit hope you laughed a bit hope you teared up a little bit I hope Jesus got bigger for you I hope we're challenged a lot in terms of what we've done with his yoke and may we reclaim the beauty of the word Christian I hope all this was a great morning for you. But more than anything, more than anything at all, may each and every one of you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Grace and peace, everybody.